Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. I'm Jennifer Witter, the CEO and founder of The Borland Group, Inc. I'm Arielle Patrick, SVP and Transaction Director in Financial Communications at Edelman and board member. I'm Minda Hart, author of the memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. I am Ebony Reed, new audiences chief at The Wall Street Journal and a board member of the Online News Association, the largest global association of digital journalists. No one will know how great you are until you tell them. So you have to go out there and own your greatness, and you have to use the right language. Don't say we when it is I. <laughs> this is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Welcome to a special edition of Secrets of Wealthy Women. On this episode, we invited four African-American female executives and entrepreneurs to share the obstacles they face in the workplace and how they're overcoming them. So Ebony, Amber Burton here at Wall Street Journal recently had a really great story about how sometimes it's difficult for women of color to have their voice heard. And I'm just wondering if you have an experience of where that was an issue for you. So I would definitely say earlier in my career, um, I definitely had, you know, situations where I felt like I'm not sure I'm being heard or seen in the room. And I can actually think of an example, something that my uncle did with me. I was a, a brand new reporter. I started my career in Cleveland. And I actually remember the day when I decided that I wanted to be a manager because I looked into a room of editors that were making decisions about the front page of the next day's paper. And I just didn't see um, a lot of people that looked like me in there. And I remember going home and calling my uncle, and he said to me, um, I gave you money at graduation to go to graduate school. And we had this whole conversation about um, did I want to work in a, a job and wait, you know, to try to move up that way, a traditional way, or did I want to go to school and get an MBA or a master's in management and media and try to move up with another level of education? Um, and that was his solution that he offered for me to think about. And that's what I did. Minda, you were being groomed for a promotion when you were younger, and you were passed over for a white younger man. Would you tell us the, that story? Yeah, that was a really painful experience because I was considered their star, you know, and uh, they were grooming me for this management position. They kept telling me, just hold out, we'll wait for the right position. And the right position came up. My um, boss, she moved on to another position, and they said, okay, you know, you do some of the role and we'll train you how to do this. You've already been doing some of it. Long story short, they ended up bringing a gentleman. So I'd been in the position or in my industry for 10 years. They ended up bringing someone who had two years experience, who was a white man. This was an opportunity for them to put someone with tenure in a position of, of leadership. And they chose to go with someone who um, they knew from a family experience. And they told me, I said, you know, I'm really surprised that you went with this, you know, could you talk to me a little bit more about this? And they said, well, he's a nice guy with a good, good wife. Mm -hmm. And that was what they told me. And then I went to go on and train him on how to manage and do the work. And it was so painful to wake up every day and do that. And, and that's when I realized I had to take my career in my own hands, that I couldn't wait for anybody to give me that opportunity. 
Unbelievable. Um, Jennifer, you said you feel a pressure to represent well. So what do you mean by that? And would you share the experience at work that caused you to think that way? In my experience, many of the people with whom I've worked have been white. And even though New York City is a glorious mosaic, as uh, former Mayor Dinkins once said, it's still a very segregated city. And oftentimes, uh, the places where I worked, the people there had never come into direct, ongoing contact with a person of color in a professional setting. I'm usually one of the only few women of color, et cetera, in the room in front of a client. So there was definitely a pressure and still a pressure that you can't make a mistake. You can't misstep. You can't speak a certain way uh, because then the the implicit bias that's there, the hidden prejudices, the everything that is not true will be reinforced. And I remember a friend of mine, she was working on Wall Street, and she she said, I feel like I have the weight of the entire race on my back. And I feel that so many, not as much as I do now, but in the past, absolutely, absolutely. And even like with my former bosses um, who would come up to me and one of them, uh, he, this is a, a while ago, and his father had been attacked uh, by a black man, and he developed a, a racism uh, because of that against all blacks. And then I come into the, the company, and I didn't know the, the history, and he always treated me okay. And then one day he just blurted that out to me, and he goes, you know, Jennifer, you're so different, you know, the way you speak, and I wouldn't know that you were from the Bronx, and if I were to close my eyes, I would think that you're from Beverly Hills, and, you know, all this nonsense, you know, college-educated, speaking a certain way, and all I was doing was being me, and it reinforced all those hidden things that we women of color have to go into every single solitary day. Um, there's an emotional tax to it. And it's all these microaggressions, the disrespect that it can culminate in physical and emotional distress. And it's something that most people aren't aware of, but they're becoming, there's more of a cognizance in society now that this has to stop. Ariel, you had shared that sometimes you face your own insecurities when walking into the room and about how people see you. Can you tell us about that? I sometimes walk into the room assuming that people are judging me or assuming that they are under underestimating me or undervaluing me. And so um, it's been a challenge to sort of look at people as human beings. And um, Jennifer's story is also kind of interesting because you didn't know by looking at this man that there was a story in his family that led him to have this mm -hmm. ridiculous bias. Mm -hmm. And so everybody has reasons why um, they are the way they are. While there, of course, has been and still is, you know, demonstrated moments where, um, you know, I feel that I'm being looked at a certain way because of the way I look. And by the way, one of my main insecurities is actually more about my age, less so being a woman or a woman of color. Well, of course, those add to it. I have sort of the triple whammy. Um, uh, I would say those are you know the things that I'm most worried about. But what's interesting is I've found more success building relationships with clients who are often white males um, by sort of thinking less about the type of diversity that you can see and more thinking about... Um, what makes a person human? So where did you grow up? 
are you also a Mets fan? Um, you know, what what is your socioeconomic background? Where did you go to school? Those are all levels, you know, that I've used to connect with people that have helped me um, sort of, you know, cut through the noise and actually connect with people on a human level. And and I, what's been interesting about that is it's also helped me understand sort of the essence of diversity because I think that when we always throw that word around, we think about, okay, we need to have 30% women on boards, but what does that actually mean? What are they bringing to the table? Is it a unique perspective that helps a company understand you know, how to better serve their stakeholders? Is it um, you know, a unique expertise that isn't at the table. So um, I've been just challenging myself to think about um, you know, what being a minority actually means and what makes me special. Coming up, our panel discusses their strategies for dealing with microaggressions, slights made against people because of things like race and gender that make them feel invisible and excluded. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. So, Minda, how can women feel or get remembered at work, right? Because sometimes the contributions just get forgotten, especially if you're a woman of color, the study show. Yeah, I think it goes back to um, what we were just talking about, building out your network, building out your internal uh, squad in the workplace. I think it's so important to build... Uh, relationships. And that's where you get to tear down some of these biases, right? So now you're getting to know me, you understand Minda from who I am, not the color, just one facet of me being a black woman. But now we've talked, you know, that I'm a Game of Thrones fan, you know, that <laughs> you know, I love to, to read, you know, the Wall Street Journal and things like that. And so once we start to talk about those things, and get to know each other, when there's issues in the workplace, you'll step up for me. You'll get to know me. So I won't be the angry black woman. I won't be the docile Asian. I won't be the feisty Latina because we built some type of relationship. And I think oftentimes as women of color, as black women, we've been told to keep your head down and just work hard. And oftentimes while we're doing that, there's this whole other system at play. People are getting to know each other in ways that we may not be a part of those conversations. And so I think when we as women of color tap into our agency, tap into our voice and learn to articulate our value and quantify our worth so that others can hear it and see our brilliance, I think we're really going to move this conversation forward. But it takes it takes both sides um, to really um, join in and all hands on deck. Well, this is what I say uh, because I'm also a public speaker and I speak a lot to women. No one will know how great you are until you tell them. Mm -hmm. So you have to go out there and own your greatness and you have to use the right language. Don't say we when it is I. <laughs> I did this. I did that. And so many women to whom I speak cringe at that and say, oh, I can't do it. It's like, do it. Because if you're spreading it out, guess what? You're going to be lost in that as well. Mm -hmm. So you have to go out there and say, I am great and feel strong saying it and knowing that you are great. So many women feel that working, you know, the work will speak for itself. And it does to a point. 
But you have to be your own cheerleader. You have to be your own advocate to get on the ladder and keep climbing up because nobody, again, will care about you like you care about you. Well, just can I quickly add to that? I just think um, one of the, the tools, though, that I've used in my career that I've also tried to help mentees understand is what, you know, in slang, we'd call the receipts, right? So <laughs> um, I have an Excel spreadsheet that dates back six years and tracks every piece of business I've brought to any firm that I've ever worked and how certain opportunities have come together. And, um, you know, and it's not just line items, it's dollar signs. And it says how much revenue um, that translates to. And I think that when you look at the way the disparity between the way women advocate for themselves and men do, um, there are studies that show often in performance reviews, uh, managers will say, you have a ton of potential and speak mm-hmm. in very broad terms. Whereas with men, they'll they'll come to the table with the data and say, you've added this much to our business. But women have to fight to get those mm-hmm. figures recognized and get those business results seen. Um, so I would say um, not only market yourself, but also have all that data tracked mm-hmm. um, to back it up. Speaking of tracking of data, I also think we can use um, those types of tools in terms of tracking and building relationships. So one of the things that my dad taught me when I was younger, um, and he, for the majority of his career, was a marketing manager. And we would go sometimes to events. I'd be a stand-in occasionally for my mom. On the back of business cards, you know, he would have like a little notation about people. And now we have, you know, social platforms, all different types of ways we connect with people, but to track. And I've kept at different points in my career Excel sheets on, you know, people. Like I remember things about birthdays and kids and schools and just like all this kind of data. And it helps as we're building relationships in the workplace. And that goes back to what makes someone human beyond sort of their identifying factors, whether it's their age, race, or gender. It's like, do they have three kids? So do I. Mm -hmm. That's something we can connect on. Are kids' birthdays on the same day, right? So try to go a level deeper. Mm -hmm. Minda, I want to pick up on something you had said because you had used the phrase – Um, you had thought you were just lucky to be in the room. And several women, when I was preparing for this podcast, said, you know, that's a theme that comes up. So many people have told me, I'm just lucky to be here. And so how, what's the tension in terms of being able to promote yourself and talk about your accomplishments on one hand, but then you have other people saying, oh, you're just lucky to be here? You know, that's a great question, Veronica. And for me, it really was owning my own worth. Once I realized that, no, I'm not lucky to be here. Actually, I worked really hard to get here. And realizing that I belong here, I, I deserve to be here. My work spoke for itself. And now the powers that be, they see that I'm, I need to be in this room as well. And so once I took that power back and shifted my gratitude into action of, okay, I'm happy to be here and great to be here, but now how can I use my expertise to push the business case for whatever may be helpful for those coming behind me? And so I think that as women, we really have to remind ourselves that we've worked so hard Mm -hmm. to get to our space and we should not diminish our um, expertise or our value by putting it as luck. Because if you look back on your life, yeah, we might have some lucky moments, but it was hard work. It was the right relationships. It was being strategic. And I realized that, um, again, as Jennifer said, I am my best advocate. And I think once we realize that, that we are our best advocate and nobody's going to advocate like we can for ourselves, then you put that power back into yourself. And that made me much more of a better asset at the table, not just it's a difference between sitting a seat at the table and securing your seat. 
I mean, does this also apply to taking career risk, being able to own your success and being able to speak about yourself confidently? Because I know there's some other women who are saying, well, there's not a lot of other women in these higher levels. And so I'm afraid to put myself out there and pr- promote myself to get to that next level because, again, I'm the only one in the room. I definitely think that. Um, that there is a level of risk, right? Because I think it goes back to something Jennifer said and something that I've also experienced where, you know, if you are that only one, Mm -hmm. a lot of times you don't want to make a mistake um, because you are worried not only about sort of like the um, perception, but you're also concerned about um, the impact on your career. You know, if if you're one of the few and, and you're sort of like putting yourself out there, there is this greater risk, this greater exposure, Um, You know, I can definitely think of times along the way in my career where um, employers wanted me to do things that were positive, but I had to step back and think and say, oh, let me think about it because I was thinking about all the other pieces to it. Like they just see it as, oh, this is a promotion and this is a job and a great opportunity and Ebony would be good at this. But I'm also thinking about, um, you know, the whole landscape and like what it could mean. Um, you know, taking that risk, taking that, you know, opportunity. It does psychological damage, I think, to a woman and a woman of color when, you know, employers, the press, whomever congratulate you or sort of celebrate you being the only one. I think it's actually incredibly intimidating and damaging. I remember I was uh, I was at a conference at my alma mater and someone raised their hand and uh, in the audience and asked a question. She said, how does it feel to be the youngest person in your industry in your role and also the only person of color and you know woman right the whole mm-hmm. she laid out my you know credentials as if it was something to be congratulated about and i remember saying it's not something to be proud of it's a problem to be solved and i do think that um society sort of makes us feel special right when we're alone in the seat the and that actually yeah, and that impacts yes. our ability to <laughs> register that you know what i actually have to work hard to push other people through the pipeline because there's nothing great about being the only one at the table. And, you know, that also hinders our ability to feel like we can perform because we're like, I can't screw up. <laughs> right. So right. It's, it's sort of a two-sided coin. Yeah. It's a bit tiring being called the unicorn. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I, I've been called that this year. Like, Jennifer, you're a unicorn. You know, you're a successful black woman who's a CEO. And it's like, there are more of us. You know, it's not like I have us all locked into the closet in my home. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, in a way, insulting. Because we are, and look at this room, we are a small fraction of the fabulous women of color out there every day who's going to work and making a difference. We just happen to have a different platform that allows us the opportunity to represent them. But it's not as though we're a dying breed, a dying Mm -hmm. language. We are one of many. How do you deal with the emotional toll of this? It's exhausting. I think yeah. say, it's been a common theme. I think that many of us have mentioned in the room, and I often say there's a song um, <laughs> called uh, Bag Lady, and I think that each of us, we have this emotional tax, this bag that of workplace trauma that we put in each time we're microaggressed or macroaggressed, and you don't realize how damaging that is till you get maybe 10 years, five years, 20 years down the line in your career, and you can't show up as your authentic self with all that damage. And sometimes I say we have to learn to pack light, but it's hard to pack light if you have all this workplace trauma. And 
for me, I look back on my career. It's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I didn't realize that I needed time to heal from all of the damage mm-hmm. being done of changing my name, microaggressions, sweeping them under the rug. And when you're the only one or one of few, you start to tell yourself that it's OK and that they didn't mean any harm when ultimately that harm is now upon me and I have to internalize that. And I don't think that's good for overall career health. It's mm-hmm. not healthy at all going out there and, you know, as you were saying, having these microaggressions is a cup that you continuously sip from and eventually it just overwhelms you. And, you know, I just came from a meeting myself and I knew that I was going to be the only person of color in there. And I was very specific about how I dressed because I felt again that I was representing. So the way I'm dressed here now, it's not just something I threw on this morning and went out. I went through a couple of dresses, looked at the jewelry and whatnot, because I knew I was going to be in a setting among, you know, high power people that I would be the only black person there. And I wasn't going to walk in not being the, the the physical equivalent of what is being expected. Because if you take one misstep, you're damned. You, we don't have that wiggle room that others have. I think on the stress point, I think um, exercise is important. I think finding hobbies. Um, I tell um, young women that I mentor that it is so important to find something that they do and that they love that has absolutely nothing to do with work, nothing to do with their profession, so that they're, you know, intersecting with people in other spaces as a way to deal with the stress. And I'll also tell you too, Veronica, that I haven't taken like a real vacation in like two years. Mm. And my boyfriend is like, no more of this. And so like he's, so it's important too to surround ourselves with good people as a way to deal with the stress. We're going on a vacation this year. Nice. Excellent. (laughs) How do you handle the uh, microaggressions where when they're at the hands of someone more senior or they're a client, for example, and you need to do business with this person? I was waiting to see my client and his staff member was there and she was much younger than me and uh, she's white. And we got into a conversation and, and it came out that I'm first generation American, Jamaican. And she said to me without batting an eye, well, you must have learned how to speak proper English by watching TV. Oh, and I was so floored by that, that I just stared at her. <laughs> You're a good person. <laughs> I, I, I was just, I mean, because yeah, it no. just takes my breath away. And now it's like, even if I freeze up, I, I make myself say something. That is not correct. I don't like that. Because they'll go about their merry little way, you know, happy as can be. And I'm there frozen in this anger and confusion that somebody would have their the timidity to say this, and they don't even realize how insulting it is. So if people don't realize, so there's an education issue, I think, here, um, also an ignorance issue as well. Um, But how can people who are trying to be good in the workplace, right, how can allies help? Mm -hmm. They can speak up. Um, I think that sometimes the pressure is on um, the women of color or the minority group um, to kind of, you know, be the person to say um, that isn't right or let me correct you. But I think allies can correct people, too. Mm, For sure. Um, I want to talk about the idea of sponsors a little bit more. Because I know several women of color who listen to the podcast have expressed interest in this. But sometimes it's an issue because... The, the sponsors they're looking for may not exist in the workforce. There may not be 
women of color in the workforce in senior positions or other people who aren't of color may not have that interest in sponsoring them. What advice do you have in finding sponsors for people who are struggling with that? Well, I think it's first important to know the difference between mentors and sponsors. I think people conflate those two terms. A mentor is somebody who can be within or outside of your organization that you can be vulnerable with, who gives you advice, who you sort of show your um, vulnerable side, right, with. Whereas a sponsor is really that's, – that's not really what a sponsor is meant for. There's someone who's in a position of power within your organization who can push you through the pipeline or at least knows people who can. And so I think people need to get over looking for someone that looks like them within the workplace who can be a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Some of my – all of my sponsors actually have been white men, and they've the man who hired me actually hired me at the age of 28 to do this job. And I remember thinking, is he crazy? And he thought, no, right? Um, and he's done everything in his power to advocate for me and and put me on client projects that that make sense and find source those opportunities. That's what a sponsor does. A mentor is a person you gut check with before you have to go get negotiate your raise with your sponsor, right? <laughs> so that's you know. I have, you know, tons of people that look all sorts of ways, several of them women of color, where I say, okay, help me get prepared for this discussion. But I think it's important to have both and also know the difference and not abuse those relationships by treating them improperly. I think it's important to know, too, it goes back to being seen. And so when we're keeping our head down and working really hard, we may not um, be visible to those who could sponsor us. So it's really important, again, that we go back and we learn and understand what we want out of the workplace and how we want work to work for us and articulating our value and our desires to move forward to those with uh, influence so that we can get that seat at the table because um, sometimes the meritocracy does not exist inside the workplace. And again, we're going to have to tell people what we want so that they can help us. And I think sometimes um, we're not saying what we want to the right people. So being strategic about those, how you find sponsors. I say anybody can be a mentor, um, but sometimes sponsorship is they're choosing you because they see you and you've articulated it. So make sure that you're getting out there and letting people know, letting the right people know what you need. Ebony, how have you been able to take other people along with you as you've advanced? Oh, my goodness. I have a, um, a, I have a tribe of um, mentees, or um, I think some of them now I would just call them colleagues because they have, you know, grown in, the, in their careers. But, um, you know, my previous job before I joined the Wall Street Journal, I was um, running an innovation lab and teaching at the Missouri School of Journalism. So I have students um, that that were in my class um, that I mentored. Um, I also have um, other people that I've met along the jo- along the career interns um, that I'm regularly in contact with. Um, I probably right now have five letters of recommendation for graduate school that I'm writing for other people. Um, I have served as job references um, that gut check, you know, as a mentor. You know, um, I also help. Um, them with negotiations for salaries um, for their first and second job. So um, I'm trying to do um, privately what um, mentors have done for me. That's awesome. I was going to say another thing that um, we need to do better is being connectors. Um, I I actually have to credit Diane von Furstenberg with this advice. I remember reading an interview with her, and she said that she has this one day a week where she forces herself to introduce two people that might benefit from knowing one another. And so I actually started adopting that. And so I I actually think it can be a little bit laborious to serve as a mentor. I do have several mentees, but you kind of have to space it out, and it's hard to take on someone else's career fully while you're trying to manage your own. So one way I just do it is is say, who, who can I pass them off to or at least introduce them to who could 
maybe go on to do business with them or maybe hire them someday or the other way around. So I think that's another piece of pushing people through the pipeline, even if it's not actively managing their career on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. Time now for your secrets. I'm Jennifer Witter, and my money secret is to live beneath your means. You always have to have funds for a rainy day, and if you don't have that funds, that rain may come down a little bit harder than you anticipate. (laughs) I'm Arielle Patrick, and my money secret is largely because I was raised by two immigrant parents, but I don't believe in debt as a concept. Um, Pay everything you feasibly can in full at all times. Uh, If you need a loan, you probably shouldn't be buying it. My name is Minda Hart, and my money tip is ask for more, because uh, no money, more problems. I'm Ebony Reed, and my money secret is I've created a private informal salary group with my girlfriends across the country, so we know in real time what industry uh, positions are paying. We'll be continuing the conversation live at a special edition of our Women in the Workplace event, Women of Color and the Way Ahead. Taking place in New York on the evening of November 21st, we'll gather top leaders for a frank conversation on advancing the ambitious women of color in their ranks. Be sure to check out WSJ.com for our coverage of the event. And if you're interested in reading more women's stories, sign up for our newsletter, Women In, at WSJ.com forward slash newsletters. Be sure to check out more episodes of Secrets of Wealthy Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.